Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. And if you find this podcast helpful in your theological rehabilitation, consider partnering with us in its production. Become a financial sponsor of That's What She Said on Patreon, a platform for supporting hey, content you love. Thanks. I'm Katie. My pronouns are she, her. I'm the lead evangelist here at Galileo Church. I'm glad to see you who are here in the bar, and I'm glad to imagine seeing you who are at home joining us from there. As Steph has said, we're beginning a new series tonight for the season of Lent. The series is called We All Fall Down. Um, at Galileo Church, I think it's fair to say that Lent is really not our favorite season. We don't make a big, big deal about it. But it is preparatory for the holiest week, which is coming six Sundays from now. And in that week, that's actually one of our favorites, um, we're going to concentrate real, real hard on Jesus' extreme solidarity with all of our suffering humanity And the hope is that because we will have been dwelling in our brokenness for these weeks of the Lenten season and thinking together about how hard this life is, we're going to be extra ready to rejoice in the extreme by the time Easter gets here. It's like a pendulum, you know, it swings equal and opposite directions um, from lament on one side to praise on the other. We can only be as joyous on Easter as we have been serious during Lent. And then Jesus comes as a relief in that season when we know how badly we were in need of him and his help. So for the Lent season, we're going to go on a continuation of our readings in Genesis, just as we were doing in the Epiphany season. We'll be picking up tonight exactly where we left off, actually, at the very end of Genesis chapter 2. And I'll read the last verse of that chapter just to help us remember where we were, and then the first seven verses of chapter 3. And the Adam and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the tree that, excuse me you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden nor shall you touch it or you shall die but the serpent said to the woman you will not die for god knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like god knowing good and evil So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together 
and made loincloths for themselves. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's get a couple things clear before we get too far into this, mainly concerning things we have assumed are in this story, but actually are not. One, it wasn't necessarily an apple. It could have been a peach or a plum or a persimmon, okay? Two, her name is not Eve, not yet. For now, in the story, she's just the woman. Three, the snake is not Satan. Indeed, listen now, there's no Satan in the Bible at all until the story of Job. There's no Satan in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There is no Satan in Joshua, Judges, Ruth. There is no Satan in 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. There is no Satan in Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and then comes Job. A tragicomic morality play with a main character called the accuser. In Hebrew, the Satan. The newest and best English translations don't transliterate that noun with a capital S because Satan is a role, not a name. The accuser, the Satan, in Job's story, challenges God to a bet about the capacity of God's servant Job to withstand suffering without cursing God. God wins the bet, and the accuser all but disappears from the Bible for a long, long time, which is the testimony of our ancestors in faith about the way God's world works. Among the remaining 21 books of the Hebrew Bible, there is a human accuser or Satan in the 109th Psalm, which is like a district attorney bringing charges in a court of law. And there is an accuser or Satan in the third chapter of the minor prophet Zechariah. It could be translated as capital S, Satan, but it is worth noting that in Zechariah, the accuser shows up uninvited in the heavenly court with one of the VRPs, the very religious persons, to accuse the VRP of religious crimes against humanity, and God won't hear the case. Instead, God accuses the accuser and kicks him out, And then God releases the VRP from guilt, gets him some new clothes, and gives him back his job. God gets everything God wants. Accuser be damned. So to reiterate, there is no Satan, neither capital S Satan nor an accuser in Genesis 3. There's just a snake. One of the creatures that God has made to populate Eden, who introduces a bit of discord into a previously harmonious system. Which brings me to another point of confusion that has to be cleared up. The Garden of Eden was not perfect. God said the whole creation was good and very good. 
And then God planted a garden in it, a beautiful and fecund garden with all the necessary ingredients for fulfillment of God's hope for all the life God had made that it would proliferate and spill over and fill creation with life. It turns out that God loves life. God loves living, breathing, reproducing creatures, and God wants more of that. So the garden of Genesis 2 is the incubator of the world, of womb, perhaps. Not perfect, as we have said for centuries, but something else. My friend, Danielle Schroyer, in her book, Original Blessing, says that the better characterization of Eden would be potential. Perfect means that everything should stay exactly as it is because anything else would be less than perfect. Potential means that something good can be even better. You can only preserve or ruin what is perfect. You can always fulfill what has potential. And God has already told creation, from the fish and the birds and the bugs to the humans themselves, to do what? To make more of themselves, to fill the earth. And God has planted trees in the garden that are filled with what? Seed, the text emphasizes a couple times their very own potential to proliferate and spread across the earth beyond the boundaries of the originary garden. Eden is brimming with potential. Eden is not meant to stay the same forever. Not perfect. Now, if you mix a couple of these ingredients together, the non-appearance of capital S, Satan, in the story, and the not-perfection-but-potential of Eden, what you get is a major hit to the doctrines of the fall of creation and the original sin of humanity, meaning we have to reconsider the church's position that what we have here in Genesis 3 is the sad account of humanity's ruination and the whole world's corruption. There is no Satan or Satan sneaking into the Garden of Eden to smash the fragile crystal vase of God's precious imagination. So those are the things that are not in this story. What about the things that are? Here's what we've got so far. We've got humans who are very much like children. Indeed, they could even be children. Our artists always paint them with full-grown, and by the way, very, very hot bodies. But it might make more sense to think of them as childlike. Imagine the Adam, the lone human for a while, inventing names for all those animals. It's a hilarious game, trying to imagine whether one of those long-necked or four-legged or winged or gilled creatures will be a good life partner for them. Of course they will not. 
But all I can see in my mind's eye is my toddlers digging up worms with delight and calling tweet tweet to every bird they saw and jabbing their fat little toddler fingers at our sweet puppy dogs to command them to sit down so they could throw snowballs at a fixed target. And remember how naked they are, the childlike humans in the garden? How unashamed of that fact they are, like two-year-olds who will streak through a dinner party after bath time, delighting in the laughter of the grown-ups, unaware that they should feel anything other than free and fine in their birthday suits. And think of what God told them about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree in the very center of their beautiful garden. Don't eat of it or you'll die. It turns out that the snake is right. They won't die the instant they swallow a bite. But God has warned them about the consequences of the tree, the way you warn a toddler about a hot stove. You don't say to your two-year-old, be so careful when you touch the stove because every so often it is hot, and if it's hot enough, it will burn you. No. You say to a little child, never touch the stove. It is hot, hot, hot. Never, never, never touch. Hot, hot, hot. You ask them to say it back to you. You're not asking them to use their judgment because they're a child. Now, someday, God willing, they will have the capacity to discern whether it's hot or not, and you will teach them to make their own mac and cheese on the very instrument that you previously told them to never, never, never touch. But while they are little children, it is never, 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 it is hot, hot, hot for their own sake. It's no wonder that the snake... Or maybe the idea comes to her first. Our ancestors knew, as we do, that girls mature faster than boys. The idea, generated by an external antagonist for the sake of the story, but perhaps symbolizing her own maturing contemplation of their situation, is this. That maybe the stove isn't always hot, hot, hot. Maybe the tree doesn't zap you the instant you touch it or take a bite. Maybe there's just something there that you haven't been ready for before. And maybe now you are. The snake symbol articulates her wondering. You will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Which, if you think about it, is not a disastrous idea. The humans have been created in God's image, after all. Not perfect, but very good and full of potential. The fruit of this tree represents the possibility of becoming even more like God. With the acquisition of new knowledge, knowledge they were not born with about the world they inhabit, the world for which they now bear some responsibility as stewards. 
If they eat of that tree, their eyes could be opened. They could understand better that their world is full of potential, potential for more and more and more of the original goodness and potential for the diminishment and deterioration of that original goodness, good and evil. It's all there, baked into the very good creation, planted in the very middle of it all, the choice for more or less of what God wants. And she wants to understand more about that. She is ready. Indeed, the story says that she examines the forbidden tree as if for the first time and notices three things about it. One, that it is good for food, as all trees in this garden are. Two, that it is a delight to the eyes, as God designed all trees to be, as we learned back in chapter 2. And three, that it is to be desired to make one wise. Listen, wisdom as a way of knowing that goes beyond knowledge is a concept that we are in serious danger of devaluing in our culture. Wisdom is maturity. Wisdom is judgment. Wisdom is discernment. It comes as we grow up and as we age Countless human cultures revere the aged in their populations for the wisdom they have, have acquired over decades of learning by experience. There have been, of late, eye-opening discussions among indigenous cultures in this country about our current complaint that the presidential candidates are too old to lead a concept that is strange and sad to people that value wisdom above virility. In scripture, the pursuit of wisdom is universally acclaimed as a good thing. Wisdom is a praiseworthy attribute of God's own self that we are meant to emulate. There is a whole genre of literature in the Hebrew Bible called wisdom. Wisdom is a gift of the Holy Spirit that we are called to desire. Jesus himself grew from childhood in wisdom, in years, and in favor with God and humans. Luke 2, 52. And his wisdom is one of the things that the Gospels repeatedly report astonished his hearers about his teachings and about his way of being among them. So in the garden, when she sees that the tree is to be desired to make one wise, when the snake or her own maturing consciousness notices that her, her eyes are not yet open to all the potential in the garden she lives in, she chooses to eat. And she shares it with him, the Adam, because wisdom is not a privately held commodity. Wisdom is meant to be shared. 
The story thus told of the woman and the serpent and the eye-opening forbidden tree opens a new question for us. Why would God, who can have everything God wants, embed such a tree in the very middle of the beautiful, very good garden? If the garden represents the very good potential of everything that God has made, why does that potential include evil or the not what God wants? Why is that there from the beginning, the way our ancestors passed it down to us? Couldn't God have been happy with eternally frolicking children, forever innocent, forever unashamed, children with a few chores to keep the garden humming, but never a blister, never breaking a sweat, never wanting more than they were given on the very first day they breathed its pristine air. We assume it was well within God's power to create a closed system with perpetual energy, perpetual health, perpetual perfection, but God didn't. Why not? Could it be that God wanted something more from God's creation? Could it be that what God actually made in those six magical days was the potential for a creation to choose God? Not the naivete of non-knowing, not the childlike clinging to the life-giving parent, but rather the mature eyes wide open, yes, to God's ways. The true partnership of wise people who understand the alternatives and keep choosing day after day to love God and enjoy God forever. Could it be that God understands that it's not love if they don't choose it? Could it be that the loving companionship God longs for is not childlike adoration, but the mature praise of people who have lived some life, have seen some stuff, and are still choosing God? Let me be clear. I am not saying that the Genesis 3 story is without pathos. Every coming-of-age story entails suffering and heartbreak, right? Think of every movie you've ever seen, every coming-of-age movie you've ever seen, every coming-of-age novel you've ever read about adolescents straddling the transition from childhood to adulthood. Oh, why not? Think of your own 13-year-old self if you can bear it. Ugh. The mullet, the perm, the sulking, the 80s. Puberty is hell. You long for the carefree, innocent spirit of childhood, even while your body and mind pull you toward maturity. You learn things about yourself, about your parents, about the world, things you did not want to know but have to know in order to make good choices in this world. Because pretty soon, nobody will be charged with preventing you from burning your hand on the hot, hot, hot stove. You're going to have to Learn that on your own, the hard way. Next Sunday, we're going to talk more about the consequences of learning the hard way. Before tonight, 
just one more observation about the inciting event of chapter 3 from verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Notice again what is not there. Nowhere does the story say that Adam and the woman were ashamed of their bodies. But if their childlike naivete kept them naked for a while, their adolescent nudity now symbolizes something else. Maybe it allows them to see that however wise they have or could become, however like God they might be, they are not God. God is not limited by a body. They are. The distinction is important, and in recognition of the difference, they show respect by covering up. Maybe their bodies symbolize appetite, the hunger we each hold for getting more than our share, for desiring that which is not ours, for never feeling quite fulfilled in having just enough. And as their newfound appetite wells up, they seek to put a lid on it, limit the damage. And maybe, just maybe, having eaten, they become aware that even the very good creation is rough on warm-blooded, nearly hairless, rather thin-skinned creatures. They need protection from it, even as they cooperate with it for good. Whatever the case, the maturing humans, rather like the adolescents they are now, clumsily make themselves clothing just for their most vulnerable bits. Fig leaves won't defend much, won't last long, but God will be along soon to take care of that. It turns out that God has mad tailoring skills to go along with God's green thumb. This sermon begs a conclusion But we are not near the end of this coming-of-age story in Genesis 3, so that'll have to wait for next week. For tonight, just this. The way God made it, the whole creation is full of potential, including you. That's how God wanted it from the very beginning. And God gets everything God wants. So our ancestors told us. And so we are still choosing to believe. Amen. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. If what you've heard is helpful, consider becoming a patron of its production by joining our subscribers on Patreon. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and support the people who love them. We do kindness around mental health and mental illness, and we celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support our missional priorities, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Share With Us. You'll have options to contribute through Venmo, PayPal, or your bank account. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, 
will continually send you thanks. Peace.